still standing here. This would be in John chapter 7. Jump around here a little bit in chapter 7 to get the setting. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in, in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. And if you skip back to for, uh, verse 14, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. So he, he'd gone up prior, but he didn't make himself known. He was just there. Then about midway through this feast, he uh, begins to teach. And the rest, quite a bit of the chapter is about what he was teaching. But I, I want to skip down to the, the uh, thing that he taught on the last day of the feast. Now, if you skip down to verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his, inner, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we have this feast taking place in Jerusalem that Jesus goes up to. It's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. If you want to read about it, we won't take the time to do it, uh, do that this morning, but in Leviticus 23, 39 through 43... 23, 39 through 43, you can look up this Feast of Booths. Uh, it was one of the great feasts of the Jewish calendar, a uh, time of celebration and praise. It lasted seven or eight days, and uh, it coincided with the time of the harvest, so it was about this time of year in October. Uh, it was also a time that the people were to remember how God took care of them in the wilderness. And that's where this idea of booths or, or the Feast of Tabernacles comes in. The people would gather in Jerusalem and build makeshift structures out of branches and leaves, and it, they'd live in those for uh, a week at a time of celebration of God's uh, 
goodness to them in the harvest time and also how he took care of them in the wilderness. Uh, basically, they were camping out in the city with these uh, makeshift structures. Uh, and uh, it, it was a joyous time. They would sing what were called the Hallel Psalms. That would be uh, 113 to 118. We, we would call them the Hallelujah Songs, Psalms uh, because they all are praise, uh, praise psalms. They start, quite a few of them start with this, this phrase, praise the Lord, which is the same as Hallelujah. So they would uh, sing these psalms and they would have a special ceremony every day at dawn of drawing a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and carrying it in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple where this water would be poured out around the altar. Um, Very symbolic uh, gesture there, these water-pouring ceremonies at this time related to God's provision of water in the desert. You might remember that he gave them water out of a rock there in the desert which uh, we're told in the New Testament was a picture of Christ. Um, Also, there were many, many promises that the Jewish people were aware of in the Old Testament related to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so these things were all being uh, thought about and symbolized in this uh, pouring of water around the altar that was taken out of this pool. The ceremonies of the week reached their peak on the last day, what the scriptures tell us, the great day of the feast. And this is when Jesus stood up and cried out these amazing words that we want to consider here today. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You can see how this fit the ceremony so well. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So here is Jesus in the midst of this great religious festival in Jerusalem, inviting all who would hear, all who did hear him, to come to him to find the fulfillment of what these ceremonies were symbolizing, what they pointed to. If any, anyone has a spiritual thirst, a desire to know God personally, to know their sins are forgiven, to have their guilty conscience cleansed, to be delivered from the fear of death and, and judgment, to fellowship with God, in short, to have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Come, Jesus says, just come. If you have that sense of a spiritual thirst, come to me and drink. All these ceremonies and libations and sacrifices that were associated with this time, all this feasting and formality could not really deal with the deep down spiritual needs of the people. As Isaac Watts said in a song, he said, He said, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. 
So not the ceremonies, not the sacrifices, not the symbolic uh, thing of pouring out this water. These would not take care of the deep needs of the people. All these ceremonies actually were designed to show the, the people their need of Christ and point to him. But in themselves, the ceremonies would not satisfy the thirsty soul. It didn't matter if they were correct. These things were prescribed in the Old Testament. And this wasn't false religion. But the real purpose of these things was to bring them to Christ, bring these people to Christ. And if they didn't get to him, the form would be empty and would not satisfy. Well, you say that was thousands of years ago. It's true for us today. God wants us here today. We're gathered together like this uh, on Sunday. That's good. That's what God wants. But this can be empty if we don't come to Christ in our times of coming together. We can't be truly satisfied in our souls if we don't meet with Christ in this time. If it's just a, a meeting of people, it won't satisfy the deep need that we have. So what would prevent our gathering today from really satisfying those needs? Well, there are things that come in that can keep us from getting with Christ. In other words, there's some substitutes that we have to be careful about. Now, these are just kind of in general. I wanted to give some substitutes that people um, put in the place of Christ that will never meet the deep needs. I mean, these are things that the world, the flesh, and the devil provide, but they won't be an answer to the deep needs that people have. They won't truly satisfy the soul. The first is a psychological substitute. How do you deal with sin and guilt and a bad conscience? Well, you simply deny it. There's no true right or wrong, no true morality. Therefore, there's no true moral guilt. But a soul that's thirsty, really thirsty, can't deny the witness of conscience. You can tell them all, all you want that sin isn't a reality, but deep down that thirsty person knows I've got a problem. There's the witness of, the con- of conscience, the wit- witness of nature, and the witness of God's word all testify. You do have a problem. So this psychological substitute will leave a person that's thirsty still thirsty. Then there's the intellectual or philosophical substitute. Through academic pursuits and higher education and philosophical contemplations, you raise yourself above the level of the gross sins of the so-called uneducated, the unenlightened. Thereby, you soothe your conscience since you have somewhat of a feeling of superiority. You're doing a lot better than most people. But reading philosophy and being schooled in the latest anti-Christian arguments only refines and redirects sin. It does not erase it. It does not really deal with sin. 
and consequently the thirsty soul is thirsty still. Then there's a self-denial substitute, self-mortification, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, or even denying that there is any such thing as true personhood at all. That's what some religions do. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, basically, ultimately, you get to the place where the self is non-existent. That's uh, supposed to be what you reach toward. So it's the, it's the ultimate self-denial. There's no self at all. Well, those things give the appearance of dealing with sin, but they don't really. They're, as Paul says, they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can do all that mortification, and it just pleases the flesh. It doesn't deal with the sin, real sin issue. Despite denial, sin and self remain realities, and the thirsty soul is thirsty still. Close to that uh, substitute, there is the humanitarian substitute. Involve yourself in some moral endeavor to better society. Protest some social injustice. But the truly thirsty soul knows that the problem is in his own or her own heart. It's not out in society. The, the problems in society are a reflection of the problems of people's hearts. So any outward changing of society doesn't change our own personal sin problem, and the thirsty soul is thirsty still. Another substitute which seems almost the opposite of the uh, uh, humanism or the humanitarian substitute is the hedonistic or hedonism substitute. This substitute basically says just live it up. Just uh, eat and drink. In other words, what you're doing is you're trying to cover up through living it up, trying to cover up your own problems, drowned out of the guilty conscience. But if there's any true God-given awareness of sin, that kind of substitute doesn't work. The thirsty soul is thirsty still. Then lastly, there is the religious substitute. This is the one that Jesus was dealing with directly in the scriptures that we're looking at today. The ceremony the ritual, even the emotion. There's probably quite a bit of emotion uh, involved in singing these, these uh, hymns of, of thanksgiving. Even, even the emotion of, re, of a religious event is used to ease the conscience and give the feeling of satisfaction. In other words, I've done the prescribed thing, so things are taken care of there. But religious involvement and endeavors are different than actually coming to Christ. The thirsty soul longs for the living God, not just a lively time. From all these substitutes that we've looked at, the thirsty soul comes away thirsty still. We must deal directly, each one of us must deal directly and personally with Christ or our souls will remain like a dry and barren land where there is no water. We must get to the living water that Jesus told that woman 
at the well about. Remember he said, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You can have a well of water springing up to eternal life if you just come to Christ. That's what he's saying here. So the real question for each one of us here this morning is very simple. Are you thirsty? Are you truly thirsty? Thirsty for the living water that only Jesus can give. It's a blessed thing to be thirsty. It's actually a sign of life, of spiritual life. It's one of the first steps toward heaven, just to realize you deserve hell and you're a needy person. It's the first step. Jesus said this, taught this over and over, but even at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in those uh, things we call the Beatitudes, he taught it over and over again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's that mean? A person that recognizes their spiritual poverty, their spiritual need. He said, blessed are they that mourn. That is, those that are sad because of sin. They have a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a gift from God. Um, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Seized over and over, teaching this very basic thing. Are you thirsty? Well, blessed, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. Acknowledging our spiritual hunger and thirst is the first step towards being satisfied. It shows that God is at work in our lives. He's produced a thirst in your soul that can't be denied. If you have the type of thing we're talking about here, this thirst, you can you can tell all you wanted to try to stifle it, but you know it's not taken care of, and it won't be taken care of until you come to Christ. One writer talked about, I think it was Augustine, talking talked about a that there's a God-shaped vacuum in everyone's heart that only he can fill. He put it there. Most of the time we stifle it and don't recognize it and don't want to deal with it. But the thirsty soul wants to deal with it. It knows that I, I'm, I am missing out. Something's terribly wrong. The psalmist said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's, that's the testimony of a person that has this thirst that God has put there and recognizes and willing to recognize their need. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So if you have that soul thirst, you should be praising God. He's produced that thirst, and you have an invitation from the Son of God himself. If any man is thirsty, let him come. Anyone. It's an open-ended invitation for the thirsty person. Jew, 
Gentile, rich, poor, young, old, sick, healthy, Pharisee or tax gatherer. The only qualification you have to have is just this one thing. Are you thirsty? Will you admit your need? If you will, there's a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. We're not talking about coming to church. We're not talking about getting baptized. We're not talking about taking communion. We're not talking about doing good works. We're not talking about giving money for some good cause. We're talking about Christ, coming to Christ. The answer to that spiritual thirst is Christ and Christ alone. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. And he invites you to come and drink of his life and death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. He was delivered up for our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. So come. This is what Jesus said, just come and keep coming. Well, you say, what does it mean to come? Coming equals believing. You see that in these verses here. It talks about if any man is thirsty, let him come. Then he says, he who believes in me. So coming is believing. Trusting. Putting your life in his hands. Trusting the testimony he has given. Trusting what he said. Committing yourself to him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Renouncing all self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and looking to him alone, casting yourself upon him, staking your life, your death, and your destiny upon him. It's all in him, you see. That's what it means to come. You just said, it's all in you, Christ. I'm putting everything in your hands. That's what it is to come. It's to, that's what it is to believe. You think about this. To benefit from water, you must drink it not just intellectually understand that it satisfies thirst. There's a big difference between drinking and just knowing, well, now I know water satisfies thirst. That will not satisfy your thirst. You've got to drink it. Believing is to drink him in. Just as a dying person in the desert who comes upon a spring of water would drink that water. That's what it is, you see. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As David said, O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is, what, this is the situation people are in. They're in the desert, a dry and barren land where there is no water. They try other things to satisfy their thirst, but there is no thing that will satisfy in the world. Those things that look like they will are are a mirage. They're not real. They won't satisfy. Isaiah says it this way, Ho! That means listen, listen up. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Don't waste your life on other things. Don't waste your life looking elsewhere. Isaiah says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. It's God speaking here. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Don't go for any of those substitutes. They won't work. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Listen. Listen to what Jesus said here. He said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This invitation is for everyone who is thirsty. The gospel ex- excludes none that do not exclude themselves. The only requirement, again, is that you're thirsty. It's not that you deserve help, but you desire help. You need help. <clears throat> I like the way one songwriter put it. He said, Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to save. And then he puts it uh, in a similar vein in another verse. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly, fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Yes. Are you thirsty, you see? That's the, that's the fitness he requires. Mm-hmm. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. It's the Holy Spirit that's put that thirst there, and he's the one that can satisfy it. Yeah. So the invitation is to come. All of you that thirst, come. Now I'd like to look specifically at the promise for all who would come. If this was the invitation, then there's a promise. This is the tremendous promise of the new covenant. We see it there in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then he explains... But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So again, he's talking about the new covenant promise of the outpouring of the Spirit here. A time At the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, this event that we're looking at here that Jesus was taking part of, taking part in, that uh, promise had not yet been fulfilled because Jesus had not died and rose again and and gone back to the Father to send forth the Holy Spirit. He had not yet been glorified, as we're told here. He tells us, Jesus tells us a little bit later in the book of John, he he says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking about going back to heaven. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, the age of the outpouring of the Spirit had not yet arrived, but it was just about about time for this to happen because Jesus was just about, this is just prior to his crucifixion. 
and resurrection and ascending back to the Father. So then the initial fulfillment of what Jesus is speaking of here in these verses took place on the the day of Pentecost when living waters began to flow from the innermost being of the disciples right there on that day in Jerusalem. Some of the crowd said that they were thought these people were full of sweet wine, but they were actually full of living water, is what was happening there. As Peter explained by quoting the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And then later on in the book of Acts, we're told the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So this promise was not just for those early disciples. What we're told what Jesus is promising here was not just uh, for the people there in Jerusalem at that time. This promise was is for everyone who would come to Christ. Every believer in Christ. It's not something we produce in ourselves or on our own but something available to every Christian, something that becomes part of our very nature as new creatures in Christ. When Jesus says that this is in accordance with the Scripture, you see that in uh, verse 38. He who believes in me as the Scripture said. When he says that this was in accordance with the Scriptures, I don't think he's thinking of one particular Scripture like this one from Joel. Uh, Rather, he was speaking of something that, was, that permeated all of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, something that's throughout the scriptures. So I just wanted to give you some examples of what the scriptures teach when he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow liver, rivers of living water. Let me just give you some of these scriptures that Jesus was referring to. For instance, we have Ezekiel 47, which tells of a vision of water flowing out from the temple. And I think that temple symbolizes both Christ and his people. Starts out as a trickle, soon becomes a river, and it's a river of life. And we're told, and it will come about that every living creature that swarms in every place where the river go where this river goes will live. In other words, It was living water that came out from the temple. Every place it goes, it brings life. And then the prophet Zechariah tells of days when living water will flow out of Jerusalem. Again, I think that's speaking of of God's people. Flow out of Jerusalem. Living waters flowing out of Jerusalem. And it says, I like this, it will be in the summer as well as the winter. In other words, when it's dry, also when it's cold. That river's right there, flowing out of Jerusalem. That's Zechariah 14.8. And then Isaiah, over and over, brings out this truth. Isaiah 12.3-5. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. That's Christ, drawing that water from Christ. The springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Isaiah 41.18. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valley. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. 
Isaiah 43:18 through 20. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of old. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour out water on the, thirst, on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Isaiah 58:11 You will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So those are just a few. The point I'm trying to make is that when Jesus said as the scripture said, he was not quoting any particular scripture, but rather thinking of the great body of the Old Testament scriptures related to the coming of the Holy Spirit on God's new covenant people. This is what Jesus is talking about here. So, let's consider this outpouring and overflowing of the Spirit that's spoken of. Consider some of the characteristics. First of all, it is a flow. You see that? He said, from, from his innermost being shall flow. It's a flow. It's not an intermittent trickle, a dribble, or a drip. There's a consistency about the Spirit's work in a person's life. He doesn't give up. When, he's, when he comes and begins that work, the new birth, and starts you on this journey, there's a consistency that keeps on coming to your, to your life and from your life. There are ups and downs in the Christian life. Some of that's due to grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit. We're told about that. Ephesians 4.30 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, sinning against that personal relationship, that love relationship. The Holy Spirit's a person, you see. And uh, you can grieve that person. It's not so much sinning against law, it's sinning against love, the one who loves you. So you grieve that person. Uh, there's multitudes of, way of doing, uh, ways of doing that. I don't want to get too off track here, but just say this morning I got in a hurry. Uh, and my wife asked me, what's the rush? Well, I kind of, I was in a hurry. I let her know that. <laughs> well, there came a little grieving there, just a little bit. I'd sinned against love. If you're in too much of a hurry to be kind, you're in too much of a hurry. Let's put it that way. I'm talking about grieving the Holy Spirit. What, uh, what would stifle this overflow? Well, grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, putting out the fire. I think that that's talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That has more of a corporate aspect to it, things that as we gather together that would quench the Spirit, quench the spontaneity that God would have us to have in our meetings, allowing the Spirit to, to lead us and guide us. But anyway, I'm just, uh, I don't want to get too far afield here. The general direction of the Spirit's work, the outpouring, and 
overflowing of the Spirit is onward and upward, despite our times of quenching and grieving. God still keeps at it. It's a flow, you see, and the direction is onward and upward. Note also, it, these verses talk about rivers. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, I'm emphasizing the plural. Many rivers. There's one spirit, but many manifestations of God's spirit. Many gifts, many ministries, many effects. And I think this idea of rivers carries with it the idea of abundance. It's not. This is not some little stream that dries up and every once in a while gets a little water in it. This is a river. Rivers. In other words, we're talking about more than just scraping by in the Christian life. The inflow and the outflow are both abundant. In other words, Christ provides abundant, soul-satisfying rivers of living water through his Spirit. And what that's what the spirit is doing is revealing more of Christ to us the more we see of Christ the more inflow there is the more outflow there is the more abundance so it's a flow it's rivers and the waters are living waters it's this speaks of moving running flowing not stagnant or sitting still they're living waters It also speaks of the fact that these waters communicate life. Christ in us is a life-giving spirit, both for ourselves and for those around us. In other words, God does enough in us that there's an overflow. There's something there for other people around us. Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. If God works his righteousness in you, it's going to be a fountain of life to other people also. The abundance that Christ supplies is a source of blessing blessing to others. Uh, again, people, we live in, this world is a desert and a, a lot of mirages, but people see through them sometimes and then there's, the openness and the opportunity for the person with some overflow to say, listen, I got some water for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the way J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, I believe that resurrection morning and judgment day, when the secret history of all Christians is revealed, will prove the full, that the full meaning of the promise for us has never failed. I doubt if there will be a believer who will not have been to someone, to someone or other, a river of living water, a channel through whom the Spirit has conveyed saving grace. Even the penitent thief, short as his time was there on the cross after he repented, has been a source of blessing to thousands of souls. He just had a little time as a Christian there on the cross, but he's with what he said then has been a source of blessing for thousands through the centuries. The point is is that we may not always see or feel even that overflow, but God can use us and will use us uh, in the lives of others. 
So let me just kind of bring it to a close here. We live in the time of the new covenant, the age of the outpouring of the indwelling spirit. And, the, and this is what Jesus was talking about here, that if we'll just come and keep coming, there will be an abundance for our lives and for those around us of life, you see, an abundance of life. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. May God help us to believe his word, to trust him to do what he's promised, and then just go forth in faith. Just believe what he said here. Uh, Again, another songwriter said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water. Thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. If any man is thirsty, let him come. That's the invitation. And we have this promise to everyone who does come. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So, tremendous invitation for everyone at thirst, tremendous promise for those that would come.